pick up a set of notes. This is part two. Part two of the holiness movement, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm not the ugly. Now don't, 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 don't go down that road, please. But if you'll notice, this week, this week, I am no longer down there. I am up here. And I'm up on the platform. And you may say, that's coincidental. <clears throat> but it's not. Because on page 16, you'll see I'm going to discuss the higher life. <laughs> so I had to come up here <clears throat> to discuss the higher Christian life. And you folks are just, well, okay. There you are. So come on in, take a seat, get your notes. Has everybody got a set of notes for today? And we'll begin. <clears throat> I'd like to begin with just a little review of uh, what we said last week. We said last week that uh, we'll start today specifically on John Wesley because John Wesley is the person mostly identified with coming up with a deviation from the way justification and sanctification had been understood since the Reformation in the 1500s. All the Reformation leaders and in the confessions, the Westminster Confession and all the great confessions understood that sanctification begins immediately upon justification. And Wesley said, no, <clears throat> sanctification is something that happens later usually. And not only that, but it's an entire sanctification a sinlessness that you can obtain to in this life. That was quite a deviation from what the reformers had taught. And so we want to trace John Wesley's thought because it's still with us today in our evangelical and other churches. It's still with us. And I just had the chart there, John Wesley, Holiness Movement, Keswick. We're going to get to Keswick eventually. Last week we talked about the term salvation and said it's a broad term. <clears throat> we speak about being saved and under salvation we have all kinds of other aspects of salvation. Redemption, propitiation, justification, regeneration, reconciliation. We're concerned primarily in this class, in this session and these sessions with two of those aspects justification and sanctification. So I say under number three, justification <clears throat> means to declare righteous. And so <clears throat> when we are saved, God justifies us. We are declared righteous. We said that's the basis for our entrance into heaven. And that righteousness is given to us, credited to us, based upon the work of Christ. Theologians talk about, in technical terms, Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. By his passive obedience, they mean his death on the cross. When he died on the cross, he died for your sins and my sins. But he lived also a perfect life. And that righteousness is applied to us in justification. So justification means to declare righteous and sanctification means to make righteous. 
So Christ lived this perfect life and God declares us righteous. Paul says in Romans 8:33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. God declares me righteous. I am righteous in his sight, in his, in my standing. But God also sees me as I really am. He knows Bill Combs is not perfectly righteous in his conduct. And so he immediately sets out upon my conversion to make me righteous, to make me holy. He begins a process of sanctification. Last uh, week I mentioned A.W. Tozer who said, when God declares a man righteous, he instantly sets about to make him righteous. Now, that's what Wesley denied, as we'll see. So I say in number four, the truth is that progressive sanctification always follows justification. Progressive sanctification is not automatic, but it's inevitable. It's going to happen because God is at work. There's no such thing as a Christian who is justified who has not also been sanctified. But there are plenty of people in our day who believe that. And when we get to the Keswick movement, we'll see that is the foundation of that movement. And plenty of schools that taught that. When I went to school, I was taught that. So we show in the, in the chart there from, from Grudem, here is how sanctification and justification are normally related. We have conversion or justification. We come into this world as slaves to sin. We're non-believers. We're held in dominion to sin, Paul says. Slaves to sin. We're converted, we're regenerated, we're justified, and then we begin a process of progressive sanctification shown by that little kind of wiggly line. Now, it doesn't go straight up. It goes up and down and up and down. And sometimes it goes down a long way. Sometimes we fall away from the Lord. Sometimes people get away for years. They backslide. But if they're true believers, God will bring them back. God will restore them. And this process of holiness will continue. Until we die, or the rapture, then we're perfectly holy. But Wesley said, no, you don't have to wait till you die. You can get it now. So I say in number five, the relationship between justification and sanctification is the central issue in this series. The holiness movement, the Keswick movement, were born out of this, makes a sharp separation, almost a total disjunction between justification and sanctification, such that they teach it's possible to have justification without sanctification. And sanctification, if you get it, can be obtained simply by faith. But the truth is that the instrumental cause of justification is of, 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 of justification. The faith is the instrumental cause of justification, and justification is the cause of sanctification. I mentioned last week that book by J.I. Packer that we have in the Resource Center if you want to do more reading on this whole holiness movement and everything. So, we come to Wesley. Now, I'm going to say a lot of negative things about Wesley. But Wesley had more character in his little finger than I got in my whole body. Wesley was a godly man. He preached the gospel. Many people were saved. But that doesn't mean he was right about everything. He thought you could lose your salvation. He was an Arminian. And he was really wrong about sanctification, as we'll see. But 
I'm going to have to say some negative things about what he taught about that. And I'm going to try to show you from Scripture later on exactly why that's wrong. So we talked about Wesley a little bit last week, and we said he came up with this doctrine of sanctification that instantly makes you holy and so forth. He influenced other movements. I'm going to deal with those. I mentioned in that A, capital A there, I mentioned uh, Charles Finney, Asa Mann, Phoebe Palmer, the Higher Life Movement, and the Keswick Movement, Victoria's Life Movement. We'll eventually get to Lewis Berry Chafer of Dallas Theological Seminary. That has that that's the one that affected me directly <clears throat> and affected so many people in this particular day. Well, let's finally talk about Wesley. I've been talking talking about him so much. Let's actually see what he had to say. I mentioned last week that Wesley lived in the 1700s, a couple hundred years after the Reformation. He was an Anglican clergyman. He was in the Church of England. He never left the Church of England. This Methodist that he started were groups of people who met in Methodist conferences, had Methodist societies, but the Methodist Church in England did not start till after he died, 1791. After he died, the Methodist Church was formed in England. They were Methodist in America in the pre-revolutionary days, but they were all part of the Anglican Church, the Church of England. I'm from Virginia, and I told you last week that the state church, the colonial church of, Eng- of Virginia, was the Anglican Church. Anything else, you were persecuted. There were Methodists there, but they were members of the Anglican Church. But after the Revolution, the Methodists formed the American, the Methodist Episcopal Church and established a separate church in America. So Wesley was in the Anglican Church, and he came up with this doctrine that he called different names. The most prominent name he called it, I mentioned under number one, is Christian perfection. He also called it perfect love. He called it entire sanctification. He called it full salvation and the second blessing. The terms I use probably most often here is entire sanctification, or I'll talk about the second blessing. But he used all those terms. Now, Wesley set forth his view point in a booklet he pushed, a book called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. Now, if you go on the Internet, you can read this. It's readily available. Readily available right on the Internet. You can read the whole thing. It's interesting, very interesting, and see what he has to say about Christian perfection. Um, this book was first printed in 1766, fourth, the last edition, 1777, but Wesley came up with the idea earlier. He came up with the idea at least by 1773, I mentioned in number two, 1733, number two, and he started preaching it. He went to various texts of scripture and he thought in those texts, he could find this doctrine of perfection. Now, Wesley wasn't the first person in history. Down through church history, there were people who longed for perfection in this life. Wouldn't you like to have it? I would. (laughs) We'd all like to have perfection in this life. We get tired of sin. So there's always been people. Wesley was influenced by those people, and he came up with this idea that you could have it in this life. So he looked at various texts, like Mm -hmm. Romans 2.29. He preached a sermon on the circumcision of the heart. Now, he went astray right there because if you study any, if you look at any 
a theological book, any sermons, any discussion of Romans. Circumcision of the heart in the New Testament speaks of conversion, regeneration. That's circumcision of the heart. That has nothing to do with sanctification. But he preached that. And here's what he uh, had to say. He said that, I'm quoting him, that Christian perfection is that habitual disposition of the soul which in the sacred writings is termed holiness and which directly implies the being cleansed from sin, from all filthiness both of flesh and spirit, and by consequence the being endued with those virtues which were in Christ Jesus, the being so renewed in the image of our mind as to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. I'm quoting from Wesley's works. They're available, 11, there's a number of, many volumes of his works. He also looked at Matthew 5:48, where Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He thought that that meant we could actually obtain perfection in this life. Um, now, Jesus is simply setting forth a standard. We're striving for perfection. We're standing for godliness. He's not saying we can actually obtain that. First John 3, 9. Sounds like it, though. Whoever is born of God does not commit sin. This is a key text of the holiness movement and others. If you, whoever is born of God doesn't commit sin. Well, of course, if you look at other translations, like the New American Standard says, no one who is born of God practices sin. The Greek tense there, the present tense, suggests a, a manner of life, a lifestyle of sin. No one is born of God has a lifestyle of sin. doesn't mean they don't commit a single act of sin. John himself talks about forgiveness of sins. And if anyone who says he has not sinned, you know, he's a liar. So this is, this is wrong. Wesley said that a sanctified Christian is so perfect as not to commit sin. And he did not object to describing the sanctified Christian as sinless. Well, do you think anybody could really believe that? Do you think Wesley really believed that people could be sinless in this life? No, he didn't. Well, I just read you where he said he did. What he did was he redefined sin. <clears throat> he redefined sin. He, 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 meant, he lessened sin so that we could say we're sinless. Notice uh, page 12. This perfection, number three, is not absolute, but only relative consisting in the freedom from willful sin of known divine law. <clears throat> so it's not absolute sinlessness. It's a relative sinlessness. Freedom, you're free from willful sin of known divine law. He refused to call anything except anything except a voluntary transgression of a known law. Thus, a perfect Christian is still subject to mistakes and involuntary transgressions. Sin is limited to willful, intentional acts. Well, the problem is that just doesn't cover sin. <clears throat> Sin's a lot more involved than just willful, intentional acts. When we studied Genesis and we studied the flood, the Bible says that God destroyed the whole world because the thoughts of the people were evil. Not just their acts, but just their thoughts were evil. The psalmist says in Psalm 90... You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. See, the problem is we have secret sins. We have sins we don't even know about. <laughs> There's lots more to sin than just voluntary, intentional transgressions. Sin is any failure to conform 
to the moral law, law of God, not only in act, but in attitude or nature. Sin is much more in depth than what Wesley wanted to make it. So Wesley gets this idea that you can be sinless, but he just means it's a qualified sinless. It's just voluntary, intentional sin that you're free from. <clears throat> now, number four, he says it comes by a simple act of faith. Now, here's a Demarest in their book, Cross and Salvation. They're summarizing what Wesley says, and I thought I would just use their summary. The crisis of entire sanctification negatively eliminates all sinful desires from the heart. Now, I would love that. I'd love to have that. <clears throat> Destroys inbred moral depravity. Destroys depravity. No longer depraved. Delivers from outward transgressions of law. Now, Wesleyans commonly speak of sin as being eradicated, completely removed. Now, as we'll see as we go along, <clears throat> this is going to cause problems for people who are not Methodists. A lot of people who are not Methodists are going to grab onto Wesley's thought here, <clears throat> but they have problems with this concept of eradication, so we'll have to talk about that. But it's just totally eradicated here. It's removed. Positively, entire sanctification affects complete purity of intentions, tempers, and actions, and stimulates perfect love of God and neighbor and restores the moral imago in the soul. Now, Wesley said, the way you know you have this is the witness of the Holy Spirit. He said, the, the Spirit witnesses with you, and you just know that you have it. Now, if you read Wesley's account, he says in his account, when I first got this doctrine, I assume that if anyone got this sanctification, they couldn't lose it. I thought if you got it, you couldn't lose it. But then he said, I changed my mind. And the reason he changed his mind, he says, in his account, he says, because I knew some people who got it and they fell away. They've, they started sinning again. So you must be able to lose it. But he said, you can get it back instantly by another act of faith, he claims, in his works there. So I have a little diagram here to kind of show what Wesley believes. So you have non-Christians, slaves to sin, then conversion. You're saved, but not much is really done about sin. <clears throat> so you're just kind of coasting along here. And you have to wait for the second blessing, entire sanctification. You might get that early, late, whenever you get it. And then you become sinless. Now, that's that's Wesley. He he called you sinless, remember, but it's really a qualified sinlessness. It's voluntary, transgr intentional transgressions is what you have. I mentioned um, number six here. The man who Wesley wanted to be his successor, John Fletcher, he defended uh, Wesley's view, and he added an idea. He said, this instantaneous sanctification, this second blessing can also be described as the baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit. Wesley didn't use that terminology, but later people will now call, when you get this second blessing, it's the baptism or it's the filling. We'll have to talk about that later. Well, let's look at page 13. Other people were attracted to this Wesleyan doctrine. One of those attracted to it was a man by the name of Charles Finney. And his fellow uh, professor at Oberlin College, Asa Mann. So Wesleyan teaching, as I say here, was a heavily influenced America. 
remember I said that uh, after the Revolutionary War, in America, a Methodist church was established. That church is still here today, United Methodist Church. It's kind of had various goings along and goings along, but it's still the same church. And um, the man who was sort of head of that church in America was Francis Asbury. And Asbury, he was a circuit writer. He went around, he spread Methodist teaching, and he particularly spread Christian perfectionism. Um, now, one of the interesting things about this Christian perfectionism is, and I didn't read the note there I had in my notes, Wesley never claimed he got it. That's rather interesting, isn't it? Wesley never claimed to have it himself. He believed it. He never claimed he got it. Francis Asbury, the guy who really spread it in America, he never claimed he got it either. It's amazing, but he, he didn't. He taught it. He, he made sure that Wesley's book was passed out in all kinds of circles, Methodist circles, and so forth. And this influenced people, I want to mention, Charles Finney and his colleague at Oberlin College, Oberlin, Ohio, just south of us, Asa Mann. <clears throat> they adopted Wesley's doctrine of entire sanctification. Let's talk about Finney. We think of Finney as mainly a evangelist, a revivalist preacher. That's how he's known. Now, Finney was not, did not grow up as a Methodist. He grew up as, he was trained as a lawyer. And then he studied for the ministry as a Presbyterian. He was a Presbyterian. He was ordained by the local Presbyterian group. And he became a Presbyterian minister. He uh, immediately began to conduct revival meetings. Uh, revivals were becoming very popular in the early 1800s, camp meetings, revival meetings. And he starts between 1824 and 1832. He conducted a whole series of revival meetings, mostly in western New York. And these were just really big things. Thousands of people came to Finney's meetings. Um, he, as I say here, established, we think of him as establishing the modern methods of revivalism. Now, I say something here that may seem a little startling here, but I say Finney is not looked upon as an evangelical Christian today. People don't look upon, that is, most people don't look upon him as an evangelical Christian. At least his teachings, his teachings are a denial of evangelical Christian. Now, in many, in many circles, Finney is lauded and, and, and looked upon as a great man and did great things. But I've got some some things he taught here. Look at what he taught. He denied, I say here under the middle of number one there, he denied original sin and that people are sinners by nature. Now, I'm quoting his lectures on systematic theology. I'm also going to quote his lectures on revivals of religion. He wrote a number of books. I'm not making anything up. And I'm not the first person to say this. Everything that I'm telling you here is not originating with Bill Combs. People have been saying what I'm saying for years and years and years. So here's Finney. He says, people are not sinners by nature. He believed that regeneration was only a moral change in a person, a change of a person's will and not a change of character, not the supernatural impartation of spiritual life to a spiritually uh, spiritually uh, dead person, really, by the Holy Spirit. So he said, regeneration is not a miracle. You don't, you don't have to uh, have a change of nature 
You don't need a real conversion experience in that sense. He says no such change is needed as the sinner has all the faculties and natural attributes requisite to render perfect obedience to God. Now, in true Christianity, we need conversion because we're slaves to sin. We're depraved. And we can't render obedience to God unless God gives us spiritual life. We're spiritually dead. But not Finney. Finney said, no, you're not spiritually dead. People are not spiritually dead at all. They have naturally all they need to obey God. Now, this is called technically in church history. This is really an ancient heresy that that Finney is spreading called Pelagianism. Pelagian was a 4th century British monk who said you don't need the grace of God to be saved. You could do it simply by obedience yourself. Finney also rejected the penal substitutionary death of Christ for sinners, arguing it was only a moral influence. When Christ died on the cross, he didn't really die for our sins. He just, it was a good, it was a good example. We see him giving himself for others. That's a great moral influence. I'm not making this up. This is in his lectures on systematic theology. He argued that salvation was strictly up to our own initiative. He insisted that the actual turning or change is the sinner's own act. He said, don't wait for God to change your heart. Why should you wait for him to do what he has commanded you to do? He denied the Reformation view of justification by faith, arguing that the righteousness of Christ is not imputed to the believer. So he was not, by his teachings, an evangelical Christian of any kind. He was not a real Christian, Orthodox Christian of any kind. And so many people will... we've. This is well understood today, but he was extremely popular in his day. And he starts on these revival meetings, and he begins what we call revivalism. Now, number two here, I mentioned that there were revivals in America long before Finney came along. We think about revivals, we think about what happened in the 1740s in America. People like Jonathan Edwards, you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, he was a pastor in New England, he was preaching the gospel. Sinners in the hands of the angry God. You remember that sermon, famous sermon. And a lot of people were saved in his church. A lot of people were saved. A revival. A revival is when God does something extraordinary. He does something unusual. Jonathan Edwards calls these meetings, these revivals, surprising works of God. He says it's surprising We would say that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we came and there were 50 unsaved people here some Sunday and they all got saved? That would be surprising. We'd love it. It's not the usual, is it? But they would be saved the same way, by hearing the gospel, by repenting of their sins, by turning to Christ, right? So these, these, the first great awakening was simply something that was the normal but it was extraordinary in the degree. As I say here, <clears throat> revivals were viewed rightly as the sovereign work of God. Revivals in which large groups of people were converted were simply the intensification of what is normal to biblical Christianity. The preaching of the gospel and prayer with emphasis on the gravity of sin and the need for the Holy Spirit to bring life to dead sinners. They were viewed as being extraordinary in degree and extent, not in nature. So until Finney comes along, revivals were were seen as something God produced. You prayed, you asked God to save people, 
You preach the gospel. But, you know, it was up to God to convert people and turn them to Christ. And sometimes he did in large numbers, like he did in the First Great Awakening under George Whitfield and uh, Jonathan Edwards. But number three, with Finney, we, there's a development of something new. We usually call it revivalism. We're distinguishing true revivals and revivalism. Um, <clears throat> Finney believed that a revival is not a miracle. Or dependent on a miracle in any sense. A revival is the result of the right use of the appropriate means. Revivals, he believed, could be produced by generating religious excitement. So he thought we could create revivals by religious excitement using new measures, such as holding revival meetings over protracted periods. So he believed you would come into town, you would set up these meetings and keep having these meetings generate excitement. As Ian Murray explains, seasons of revival became revival meetings. Instead of being surprising... Instead of being surprising, they might now even be announced in advance. Now, this is in Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism. I'm just touching on this subject of revival and revivalism. But that book by Ian Murray, Revival and Revivalism, is a really good book. We have some in our resource center if you're interested in reading more about revivals, Finney, revivalism. I'm just touching on that subject today here. Finney made use of the anxious bench. He would have people come forward. He would pressure sinners to come forward, sit on this bench, and sort of pray through until they found Christ. The assumption would be if they came forward, they would be converted. After all, it's simply a human decision, Finney said. There's nothing God has to do. You have all the requisite facilities to trust Christ yourself. And this is the beginning of you know, the altar call and the altar. He would invite people to come forward. You try to persuade them. For most of my life, I've been in churches that had revival meetings, regular scheduled revival meetings. You know, we would schedule. In fact, I was in a church once we had four revival meetings a year. We would schedule, have an evangelist come in, So revivals are no longer surprising, as Jonathan Edwards said, they're planned and programmed in advance. And so Finney would have people come forward, come to the, come to the front. He would do all kinds of things. He would uh, actually point out people in the service. He would point to people and point to them and point out specific sins. I've, I've been in a, I was in a church once where that happened. I, I've been, <laughs> the evangelist would come down, walk down the aisles. You ever been walk up and down the aisles and get people and try to get them to come forward and at the altar and so forth? I've seen that a number of times. Um, so this idea of the altar call really gets its emphasis with Finney's idea that really this miracle of regeneration is not a miracle anymore. It's simply the sinner just needs to come forward and be convinced, be persuaded. Um, you may wonder why in this church we don't have any altar calls in every church 
that I've been in, most churches, we have altar calls where the message is preached and people are urged to come forward and bow down, kneel down at the altar and, <clears throat> and so forth. Let me say some things about that. And if uh, I say something incorrect, uh, Pastor Ken will correct me. Actually, a trap door will drop down here. <laughs> Why don't we have altar calls in this church? Well, first... We have to distinguish between invitations and altar calls. Because there's no altar call, no call to come to the altar, does not mean there's no invitation. Every time we preach the gospel, every time Pastor Ken preaches the gospel, we invite people to trust Christ. We invite people to accept Christ, to make a decision for Christ. Every time the word is preached to us, As we're sitting out there, we're invited to repent of our sins, of our failures. We're encouraged to follow Christ and his word. So we're always invited to respond to the word. Secondly, as we have noted, altar calls are a rather modern innovation in the church. They really kind of began with Finney in the early 1800s. They're not found in the New Testament. They were not used by Jesus. They were not used by the Apostle Paul. They were not instituted until the beginning of revivalism in the 19th century. Well-known evangelists like George Whitfield, the Methodist evangelist, did not use altar calls. John Wesley didn't use any altar calls. Jonathan Edwards didn't use altar calls. They never heard of any such custom as coming to the altar and so forth. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher who lived during this time, was a very passionate gospel preacher and soul winner. And he was well acquainted with his practice, and he refused to adopt it, and he spoke vehemently against the practice of altar calls. Thirdly, altar calls have produced more bad than good. Finney believed that saving faith is simply an intellectual decision. And so coming forward sort of proves that you have saving faith. You have saving faith if you come forward. The altar call, as if you've been in churches that use a lot of altar calls, you know it works on the power of emotion, on persuasion, on social pressure to try to induce people to make a decision. You're out there in the audience and the evangelist says, you know, do you love do you love Jesus as much as you should? Raise your hand. Do you love Jesus as much as you should? Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, you need to get down here at the altar. <laughs> so you can always get people, you know, to come to the altar. They didn't really want to, but they feel like they must. You know, it's a lot of pressure. And the problem is you can induce people into making hasty decisions, decisions that don't really mean anything. Producing professions is not the same thing as making disciples. It's easy to confuse the physical act of coming forward in a service with the spiritual act of coming to Christ. We pray for people to come to Christ. But the altar call carries the dangers that some will be pressured into a decision that they don't really understand. They don't really feel genuine about it. 
and they really won't make a genuine confession of faith. It's not that giving an altar call is sinful, but neither is it required. Well, that's my little excursus on altar calls here. So Finney uh, started this business of altar calls coming forward, a lot of pressure. Uh, Notice I say here, after that I say, Christians were to be blamed if there was no revival. For according to Finney, God has placed his spirit in your disposal. You see why you you don't have a revival. It's only because you don't want one. Now, this was common in the churches I was in. The evangelists would always blame us, you know. <laughs> we, we had this revival meeting, and the pastor encouraged us to invite our unsaved friends, and we'd try to get them to come and all that, you know. And, and the evangelists would come, and there wasn't a lot, you know, not many people got saved. And then the evangelists would blame us. It's our fault. You know, you guys are just wicked sinners who don't want revival, you know. So... This is a common practice. Now, what's interesting, I mentioned our number four is eventually Finney gave up on his revival meetings. As he looked out over the landscape and there were thousands of professions of faith, he found that these professions were not lasting. They weren't really, people weren't really sticking. They weren't in churches. There was no real evidence. He was very dismayed by this. So he took a pastorate in New York City. And later, when he was offered a professorship at Oberlin College by Asa Mann, he took it. Asa Mann was a friend, and he was the first president of Oberlin College. And so Finney went there, and they began to tackle this idea. What happened to Finney's converts? And so they studied this issue. They were looking at what Wesley was teaching, and they came to the conclusion The problem with Finney's converts was not that they weren't saved. They just didn't get the second blessing. That's what went wrong. So they adopted this idea of Finney, the second blessing, with some slight modification. Green notes here. They taught a doctrine of perfection made possible by baptism of the Holy Spirit, which empowered and perfected the will of the believer to act in conformity to the will of God. Though not denying Wesley's emphasis on perfect love and its moral perfection, Oberlin theology emphasized all emphasized perfection of the will, the voluntary and conscious action of Christians. Like Wesley, Oberlin theology held that there is no sin except voluntary transgression of known law. Sanctification, entire sanctification was to be attained by an instantaneous act of faith. Man adds something a little extra to this. He comes up with the idea then that there's two kinds of Christians, a lower kind who've received only justification and a higher kind who have, who are spiritual. This lower kind are called carnal Christians. I'm illustrating that on the chart there, that little table. So you, you're justified, but when you're justified, you're just a carnal Christian. Nothing is going on in your life. There's no holiness. There's nothing. You're just kind of gliding along as a carnal Christian. And then you're waiting for this second blessing, sanctification. And that's what was wrong with Finney's converts. So Mann, I mentioned on page 15, next page, Mann encouraged Finney, why don't you go back and preach the second blessing of these people that you... Your convert. So he did. He went back to places like Rochester where he had a very successful revival meetings there. From what I've been able to read, he, he wasn't all that successful. Uh, 
People don't know exactly why he didn't have the big results. Some say they just didn't understand this perfectionism as he taught it. One of the problems with Methodist perfectionism, as Wesley taught it and these guys taught it, was, well, exactly how do you get it? You get it by an act of faith. Okay, I got that. But, okay, what are the steps or procedures? It wasn't exactly clear. Now, though Finney was not a Methodist, I'm showing on that chart below number six there, that you have Wesley, he influenced Finney, and Finney is influenced what's coming next, the holiness movement, which comes out of Wesley. And to talk about the holiness movement, we need to talk about Phoebe Palmer. So what happened next was that this teaching of Wesley, Finney, Methodists in the early 1800s, developed into kind of a new movement called the Holiness Movement, mainly young Methodist groups. This became a big movement, particularly because of one woman by the name of Phoebe Palmer. Uh, Phoebe Palmer and her husband, Walter Palmer, were Methodist, and they were interested in this uh, second blessing of sanctification. Her sister began some prayer meetings called the Tuesday Meetings for the Promotion of Holiness in 1835. Now, a lot of people went to these meetings, and I'm going to mention some later who went to these meetings and were influenced by these meetings. So in 1837, she got the second blessing, and her husband got it, and they began to embark on a ministry around the country and around the world. They went to the United States, Canada, the British Isles, because her husband and her were very good communicators about this second blessing and how to get it. She was a charismatic person. It's hard to, to explain how a big a person she was in the 1850s. She was a huge personality. Huge personality. And the Methodist Church was becoming the largest church in America at that time. She had a book called The Way of Holiness. She had a periodical I mentioned on the top of page 16, The Guide to Holiness. She was just really influential, and she was influential because of what I'm going to say next. She even wrote letters to Queen Victoria in England. She wrote two letters to the Queen. We know she wrote the letters, and we know the Queen got them because the secretary of the Queen wrote back and said, we got your letters. She wrote these letters, and she said, Queenie, she didn't say Queenie, but... (laughs) She said something like that. She said, you know, I'm concerned about your soul. I think your soul's in peril for several reasons. First of all, you go to the race, you go to the race track and watch these horses, you know. Secondly, you go to the theater. And third, worst of all, you are sailing your yacht, the royal lot, yacht on the Sabbath day. I guess she felt she could do it. She was quite a person. What made her famous is number two. She came up with a way of simplifying Wesley's doctrine of sanctification, of entire sanctification. She was influenced by Wesley. She was influenced by the Oberlin theology of Finney. She added the fact that if you get this second blessing, you also get an endowment for power. But she devised what's called her simple or shorter method. Her simple or shorter method for getting the second blessing. Now, she did some strange exegesis. She, she twisted a little scripture here, but she got there. She starts with Matthew twenty three nineteen. The altar sanctifies the gift. She just lifts that sentence out where Jesus is speaking about the Old Testament and so forth. 
The altar sanctifies. That is, in the Old Testament, if you put something on the altar, it's set apart for God. It's sanctified. She took Exodus 29, 37. Whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Therefore, if one places oneself on the altar, Romans 12, 1, if you consecrate yourself, if you dedicate yourself, you'll be holy. This is a pretty simple formula. So, uh, White summarizes, let me just read his summary here from the Dictionary of Christian America. He says, Her altar theology reduced the quest for sanctification to a simple three-step process, consecrating oneself entirely to God. So you just, Romans 12, 1, you come forward to the altar, present yourself, dedicate yourself, believe that God keeps his promise to sanctify what he's consecrated. Okay, God said he would do it. You have to believe it. Third, bear witness. You have to tell others that you've done it. This is really the beginning of the name it and claim it theology that we even have today. So this was a very simple formula. And this really kind of revolutionized Methodist thinking. Now, one of the problems that happened were, was that Methodists themselves, the major Methodist denomination by the 1850s and on, were sort of giving up on Wesley's doctrine of entire sanctification. The Methodist church today has totally given up. They don't believe in Wesley's doctrine of entire sanctification at all. They were giving up on it. And people like Palmer spurred it on and developed, there developed new denominations. I mentioned like Wesleyan Methodist, Free Methodist, Church of the Nazarene, Church of the Missionary Alliance, Salvation Army, and we'll see the Keswick Movement. So there's the chart showing how Phoebe saw it. You have conversion, you're a carnal Christian, you need that dedication. You need to come forward, dedicate, consecrate your life, believe that God has done it, and you'll, you'll be sanctified. Well, that leads to this higher life movement. Let me just mention that and we'll stop. The higher life movement was a movement outside of Methodist circles. So other people started looking at this doctrine of sanctification by Phoebe Palmer. They were picking up on it. But they didn't like some of the terminology. They didn't like the perfectionist language. They found that a little distasteful. That you could talk about being absolutely perfect or sinless and so forth like that. They looked upon it as basically being cleansing from sin. So you can see on page 17, uh, I've got a chart there. Wesleyan perfectionism, holiness movement, higher life. The higher life movement is the adoption of this theology, this second blessing, outside of Methodist circles. This began primarily with a man by the name of William E. Boardman, who was a Presbyterian minister. He wrote a book called The Higher Christian Life. And he adopted this theology of full salvation, second conversion, justification and sanctification distinct and separate. But he didn't talk about eradication of sin or sinlessness. He talked about deliverance from all conscious sinning. So what happens in this second blessing, you're not conscious of sinning anymore. You're on this higher plane, this higher life. The pastor of the church where I was saved at, I mentioned, was into this Keswick kind of stuff. I didn't understand it. But he would always talk about the higher life, living the higher, the victorious life on a higher plane. This also spread was by other people. I mentioned Robert Pearsall Smith, Hannah Whitehall Smith. They were people who 
took up this doctrine. They were not Methodists, but they began to spread this doctrine. They even went to Europe. I mentioned on page 18. They spread this in Europe and so forth. She had a book called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. That's still being read today. It's thought of as a devotional classic, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. So the idea was you get this second blessing, you're not conscious of any sin, you're very happy. As I say here on number four on page 18, Mrs. Smith's teaching are a combination of Wesleyan holiness and kind of Quaker concepts of quietism. She brought a quietism and extreme passivity. Let go and let God. Come to the altar, dedicate yourself, let go, let God. She describes the higher life as an entire surrender, a perfect trust resulting in victory over sin and inward rest of the soul. In this state, the believer is free from any conscious transgression of God's law, certainly a happy life. This would be a happy life if we were not conscious of any sin. But that is an illusion, my friends. The seeking of happiness is not the path to holiness. And God is not primarily concerned about our happiness. He's concerned about our holiness. Paul says in that great chapter, chapter 7, on sanctification, he says, So I find this law, this principle at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Theologian John Murray says, That if we are not conscious of our own sin, we are either hypocrites or self-deceived. John Owen, that famous Puritan preacher, said, The one who understands the evil of his own heart is the only useful, fruitful, solid believer. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul doesn't say, I was the worst. I am the worst. Paul was conscious of his own sin. There is no second blessing where we become unconscious and we we don't even know that we're sinners. Well, next week we'll get on to the Keswick movement and see how all this plays out. Sorry for holding you over. I want to remind you that we're going to have uh, the uh, baptism uh, dinner and service at 5 o'clock.